Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. And we are going to talk about Javier Millet, the Argentine chaos agent, anarcho-capitalist, presidential candidate, economist guy, and his hair. We are going to talk about <laughs> Martin Grunberg, who's the chair of the FDIC, and how he wants to make the banks safer. We are going to talk about Rayo's pasta sauce and how valuable it is and how that all happened over the course of the pandemic. And we have a Slate Plus segment on holiday months at the supermarket. Why are we buying Halloween candies in July? What's happening? We will answer all of your questions. It's a fun one this week. You should listen. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so let's start with the large but not enormous banks, which it turns out we all learned in March of this year are systemically important. There are these big things called global systemically important banks or GSIBs, and there are like five of them in America, and you know who they are. They're Wells Fargo and Citigroup and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and JP Morgan and State Street and you know those guys, the, the giants, trillion dollar balance sheets. And everyone knows they're too big to fail. And as Emily has said many times, too big to fail is good now, because if you're too big to fail, that means you can't fail and you can't cause a banking crisis. <laughs> then one layer below them is the regional banks, which definitely included SVB and um, includes people like Truist and PNC and banks like that, which still have hundreds of billions of dollars in assets and could cause real chaos if they failed uncontrollably. And when SVB failed and a couple of others, the Federal Reserve was forced to step in and declare something called a systemic risk exception, basically meaning that all of the uninsured depositors would, would get all of their money back because they were really worried about the systemic implications of these banks failing. And so, Emily, this week we had Martin Grunberg, who's the chair of the FDIC, coming along and giving a really important speech and saying, Given that we have now learned, basically, that these banks are, to all intents and purposes, too big to fail, that you have to invoke this systemic risk exception if they ever fail, and the word systemic is right there in there, um, shouldn't we be treating them more like too big to fail banks? And shouldn't we be like imposing more conditions on them in existing? Is that, is that more or less what he said? Yeah, I think so. He said we need to avoid getting to a place of the sort we were back in in the spring. We don't want to do a systemic risk exception. It's really hairy to get it all pulled off. And it's not a guarantee that it would happen. Like say, you know, there's a Trump administration in the White House or any administration, they might not agree to doing a systemic risk exception and, and the whole thing might go kablooey the next time. So the idea here is to put new systems and guardrails and things in place so you don't get to that point again, right? Exactly. And and even with the systemic risk exception, the banking crisis this year was kind of hairy. And he goes into detail about basically how, you know, one of the things that too big to fail banks all have to do is they have to come up with these things called living wills and, you know, basically really give 
the regulators the ability to come in and take over and know where everything is and be able to communicate and know who the key employees are and all of that kind of stuff. So that if there is a bank failure, you know, the, the actual business of banking can continue uninterrupted. And basically, although technically they had them, in, in reality, they were woefully insufficient. And the FDIC came into like Silicon Valley Bank and just had no idea where the light switches were, basically. Yeah, and I think uh, Signature Bank had not yet filed their first one of those. So when they failed, it was, you know, chaos. The question I have is, I guess we should say what Grunberg is proposing to do. You already mentioned the living wills, and he's proposing um, that banks issue long-term debt or bonds to sort of make them more resilient when they're doing badly and to keep them on their toes more because there'll be like a new class of investors kind of watching them. But I sort of wonder if what he's proposing is enough and if it actually addresses what went wrong in the spring. So there's two really good questions. And if you talk to someone like Anat Admati at Stanford, who's you know very big on just forcing the banks, all banks, to have much more capital than they do, um, she'll say, no, this isn't enough. And the only real solution here is to just force all banks to have much more capital than they do. But like, that's not really on the cards. No one's expecting, no, no one thinks that's realistic for various sort of political reasons. And also just because on some level, I'm not sure that making sure that no bank ever fails is necessarily top of the list of things that governments, governments should be doing. Like, I think... Right making sure that banks can fail without causing a crisis is important. But, like, it's better that they should be able to fail. And I really, really like this idea of forcing them to issue bonds. And to be honest, it kind of came as a surprise to me to learn that you had these huge banks, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and Silvergate and various other ones, including, like, PNC and Truist and these, these other regional banks, who have almost nothing in the way of long-term bonds outstanding. Um, because you think of banks as being these sort of sophisticated financial engineers who are constantly doing clever things with capital stacks, and every other company in the world pretty much has you know a bunch of stock outstanding and a bunch of bonds outstanding. And it kind of, it's unintuitive that banks would not. But it turns out that most bank liabilities are not bonds. They have a little bit of like overnight debt in the in the sort of overnight um, bank lending market, what used to be called LIBOR. And then they have a lot of deposits, right? Those are their main, yeah. that's their main source of liabilities is they just owe money to their depositors. And they don't really have much in the way of bonds. And it turns out that if they do, and especially if they're long-term bonds, that solves a huge number of problems at like one stroke. It's a really efficient and elegant way of solving a bunch of these problems. I don't really understand why. Maybe you can explain why bonds are such a panacea. Why are they a panacea? Well, I know it's really weird. Like I'm the guy who's like, this isn't going to be a panacea. And now I'm I'm the guy coming out and saying, you know what? This kind of looks like a panacea. This is it cures everything. So let's let's go down the list of things that a bond does. The first thing a bond does is it's not what's known as loss-absorbing equity because it's not equity, but it basically acts a little bit like that when a bank fails. When a bank fails, obviously the pro the problem we're worried about is that its liabilities are bigger than its assets, right? And so it owes a bunch of money to a bunch of people and it can't 
pay that money to a bunch of people because it doesn't have enough assets to cover those liabilities. And the liabilities of the bank, as, we, as we've said, are almost entirely deposits. And deposits are insured. And even uninsured deposits are insured. This is the thing that we learned during the, the banking crisis this year, was that even though technically deposits over $250,000 were uninsured, in practice, bang, in comes their systemic risk exception and they all become insured. Which means that all depositors get their money back. There's no like loss-absorbing capacity on the part of depositors. And really, it's the government on the hook in the form of the FDIC insurance fund who winds up you know, having to pay, in this case, I think, 33 billion dollars between Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, you know, is, is the estimated losses to the FDIC in terms of having to pick up the bill for these banks failing. So what bonds do is they create a whole new level of liabilities that instead of the FDIC insurance fund picking up the losses and instead of it, it depositors picking up the losses, the people who take the losses are bondholders, people who walked in with their eyes open, knowing that they were taking credit risk and saying, yeah, because we're getting paid a little bit extra, we're getting that extra spread over the risk-free rate, we are willing to lend you money. And we know that the risk we're taking is that we might lose that money if the bank fails. And so that is a way to create this kind of buffer zone of allowing the bondholders to lose enough money in the event that the bank fails, that the depositors never really become at risk. So the bank fails, depositors get their money back, but the bondholders lose all their money. Or at least some of it. Yeah. The idea is like in in the in the jargon that the de- that the bondholders are junior to the depositors. Oh wait, and so the bondholder money helps um, lighten the load on the FDIC or something. Exactly. And it does a couple of other things as well. One of the things it does is it creates a whole class of bondholders, right? Which And bondholders are very different from shareholders. Shareholders want to maximize upside. They want to make the bank as profitable as possible and get as much money as possible for themselves because their upside is unlimited. Bondholders have highly limited upside. They they know the the best case scenario is that they just get their money back with, you know, the statutory interest. So what they want to do is minimize downside. And so now that the bank is being forced to issue bonds on a regular basis, the bank is having to sell securities to investors who don't care about the upside anymore. They just care about minimizing the downside. And so they have a whole new set of stakeholders. And the bank is going to want to issue those bonds at a very low spread. You know, they want to be seen to be very safe. And so they are going to have to persuade the markets that they have a negligible amount of credit risk because that is the only way that they're going to be able to issue those bonds at a cheap rate and be able to keep their cost of funds low. And so that forces the bank management to be much more conservative and much and much safer. So the bond investors are regulators. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 like you remember that famous quote from James Carville about like when I get reincarnated, I want to come back as the bond market because I'm so powerful. It's a no. little bit like that. <laughs> Does anyone remember that? <laughs> Didn't he say something else that everyone paid attention to? Was he the one who said? It's the economy stupid. Isn't he, it's the economy stupid? I think he might have, he might be responsible for that. I don't remember the bond quote is what I'm saying. 
And then there's this other thing, right, which is that because the bonds are traded every day and there's a market price for them every day, whenever the market thinks that a bank might be in trouble, it will just mark down the price of the bonds and that that spread on the bonds will start gapping out. And that's a really good early warning system for the Federal Reserve and for regulators and for the market as a whole saying, hey, there's a problem here. And when that starts to happen, the bank is going to really work very hard to raise new capital or do whatever it needs to do in order to try and, you know, calm the waters. Mm-hmm. And it's a, that bond spread is a much, much better indicator of how risky a bank is and what its chances of failure are than the share price, which is really all we have to go on right now. My questions were when I was thinking about this was I went through a little bit of a roller coaster because Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, it it failed because of a viral panic that happened over a day when people just yanked their money out. Mm -hmm. And does this, does Grunberg's plan address that specifically? No, it's the idea is to head it off so that never happens again. So there's never a viral panic again, which I guess makes sense. You can't really address viral panic straight on like the what what are you going to do shut down twitter or x or something no you just have to make it so that a panic doesn't happen because people are watching the bond market or whatever and they're looking at signals and they understand the risks more than they did in silicon valley bank's case i think that's exactly right the, the, he he's quite clear about this that the reason why people were panicked was you know they were watching the stock price. The reason why they were watching the stock price is because there wasn't a bond price. If the bond price had been giving signals all along, then that would have given the bank a lot more time to raise the amount of capital it needed to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, the reason that people were panicked was because they knew that if the bank failed, they could look at its balance sheet, and they knew that if the bank failed, there wasn't the bank didn't have enough assets to cover the uninsured deposits. And so there was a very, very rational rushed to the exits because they were like, if we don't get out now, we could lose all of our uninsured deposits. That was a very mm-hmm. real risk. If there was a whole bunch of bondholders out there who would take losses before the uninsured depositors, then that would put the uninsured depositors in a much safer place and make them and it would make the chance of them losing money on those uninsured depositors on, on those uninsured deposits much more remote. So they would be much less likely to panic. What's interesting now is that the sector of these, the regional bank sector, these mid-sized banks really aren't doing very well, but I don't think that anyone's really worried about another banking crisis. Like they just seem to be kind of ambling along. Not yeah, I mean, well. that's fine, right? I mean, this is what banks are supposed to do at this point in the interest rate cycle, you know, that they, they find it difficult to lend because interest rates are so high because the Fed has raised interest rates. And you know, their assets have gone gone down in value because interest rates have gone yeah. so high. And so they're, they're facing struggles, and banks do face struggles at this point in the cycle. But the idea is if you have long-term bonds that are like, you know, 10, 20 years in maturity, if you have permanent equity, which is what stock is, then those investors in that stock and in those bonds are looking over, you know, a full cycle. They're looking 10 years ahead, Um and so they can see past whatever like immediate troubles the bank has, and they can absorb that kind of volatility in the way that maybe a more fragile structure without all of those you know bond and stock buffers might not. Right, and you don't want a fragile structure and a fragile banking sector where there's like rolling crises, crises that can kind of play havoc on the economy and 
make life harder for actual real people. There's one other intriguing line in the Greenberg speech, which no one entirely knows what it means, but he's saying that you that if you have bonds, that opens up a new option. In like, if you have a bank failure, maybe you don't need to sell that bank at all. Like the way the FDIC works is that if a bank fails, the FDIC takes it over and then it sells that bank, nearly always in whole, but sometimes in parts, um, to various other banks. And he's saying, well, maybe you might not need to do that. You know, maybe if you have bonds, then what you can do is you can basically restructure those bonds, maybe do some kind of a debt for equity swap, something like that, and then turn those bondholders, those old bondholders, into the new shareholders somehow, and then just recreate the bank, you know, sort of post-failure as a self-standing independent institution. He doesn't quite come out and say that, and it's not clear that that's exactly what he has in mind, but it's definitely one way of reading what he said. And it does basically, and, and and what he's very clear about is that what he's doing is he's giving himself more options in the event of a bank resolution. When the bank becomes owned by the FDIC, the FDIC at that point has more options of what to do with the bank if the bank has these outstanding bonds. And, that, and just more options is always better. Yeah, he also says that it, it you know opens up the possibility of being able to break up the banks and sell parts of it to acquirers instead of having to do a full acquisition by one institution. Well, I mean, that's the bit which I don't understand, right? They've always had that option. And I don't, I don't really understand why the existence of bonds makes it any easier to break up a bank and sell it off in parts rather than doing it all in one fell swoop. Like, do you understand that? I, I, I sort of assumed that it was a function of, you know, timing so that you wouldn't have to, if a bank fails on Friday, do a weekend fire sale, the the bond structure at, combined with the other thing that he's proposing, which is uh, a more fulsome resolution plan that banks would have to file. I think that that explicitly details what assets can be potentially sold off. I, I sort of assume that those two things were working in concert and it wasn't just a function of long-term debt. Well, yeah, but does the long-term debt help at all? Like, what, how, how does it work in concert? And of course, you know, it did take them a few weeks to sell off Silicon Valley Bank. He didn't manage to do that over the course of a weekend. So like that, that's already something that they can do and do do. And I think they did sell off Silicon Valley Bank kind of in part. So they certainly have bits of it left over that they haven't sold yet. Well, that's TBD then, I suppose. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, so, but I, you know, maybe like when we see this, um, you know, fleshed out proposal, this is just a very high, high level picture of what he wants to do. But it will, there will soon be like an official draft, you know, rulemaking, which will go out for a comment period and all of that kind of thing. And maybe when we see that, we'll see what he has in mind on this. But I, I do like the idea that there are more options and that there's like a bunch of different mechanisms making banks safer. Um, and that ideally we won't have any more of these bank crises, which would be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, and that's been the trend, kind of, less bank crises. Like if you go back over 100 years, it was once the norm in the United States for banks to fail all the time. Exactly. <laughs> like people were in the habit of like running to get their money out, you know, like that was that was how it worked. And then the FDIC existed. Go watch, you know, the It's a Wonderful Life episode of Slate Money, or listen to it, rather. Right. I mean, it's kind of remarkable how much more stable the sector is than than how it was. I know it's a long time, and we're all used to it and spoiled by it, but it, 
it is really remarkable. And it's not that long since a GSIB failed. We actually had mm-hmm. a too big to ba- a too big to fail bank fail in the form of Credit Suisse, and you know it was messy. But ultimately, the systemic implications of that failure were surprisingly slim. Like you know the 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 sun rose the following morning, and we certainly didn't have some kind of Lehman Brothers moment where there was a major crisis as a result. We have other crisis crises. I'll get it right one day. We have other crises to focus on in this world. The banks can just get it together. They're boring. They're supposed to be boring. Next week, we'll we'll do a whole episode on on all of the other crises follow, f- facing the planet. But all of them. All of them. <laughs> Literally all of them. Every um, single one. But for the fi- time being, it looks like maybe banking crises won't be one of them. Yay. Okay, so, so let's take a break and then talk about pasta sauce, people. Emily, you're the yes. Go careful. Suburb careful dweller. I'm going to mm-hmm. say the supermarket shopper. <laughs> Tell me, are you a, a, a connoisseur of Rayo's pasta sauce? Felix, I'm not. We're about to talk about this big deal that happened recently, where Campbell's bought the food company that makes Rayo's pasta sauce. They paid 2.7 billion dollars, which is like a lot of money for spaghetti sauce in a jar. But um, apparently it's worth it because Rayo's is the best pasta sauce, according to our producer, Patrick Fort, and the Washington Post, and I guess a lot of and the, Wash- and the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal. But to answer your question, I don't use jarred pasta sauce. because Because you are a true really- earthy child <laughs> of the planet, and you make your own pasta sauce, goddammit. Uh, it's so easy. You just, well, I mean, I don't make it from school tomatoes usually you just but you just buy a can of you know crushed tomatoes or whole tomatoes or whatever it doesn't even take that long anyway no judgment to anyone who uses a jarred sauce it turns it turns out that rayo's pasta sauce is you know made to very high quality standards in sicily i believe from very specific sicilian tomatoes that are cooked incredibly carefully and very well and it is all natural ingredients and there's no sort of random additions of canola oil or anything like that and it is significantly more expensive than most other jarred pasta sauces but when we're talking significantly more expensive we're talking about the difference between like four bucks and eight bucks this is this is the kind of everyday luxury that people can actually afford and the great success of this brand has been to basically go to people and say, you can afford this. Why don't you just pay that extra four bucks and get an actually better pasta sauce while at the same time going to the supermarkets and the grocery stores and saying, you should really be pushing the Rayos because you make more profit on a single jar of Rayos than you do in revenue on any of the other brands. Incredible. That was an incredible detail in the Wall Street Journal story, I thought. Elizabeth, have you tried Rayo's pasta sauce? Yes, I'm just going to assume. I, I buy luxury jarred pasta sauce occasionally. <laughs> um, and I like their marinara. And, and I'm also incredibly lazy, so I don't make my own sauce that often. That's okay. No judgment. <laughs> I, I think one of the reasons why I bought it initially was uh, because it doesn't have added sugar. And almost every jarred brand that you get has that. And so if you're, if you're, if you're diabetic or you, you you know, insulin resistant, you know, having jarred options that don't have those things in it actually very convenient. And it's tasty. It really is kind of way better than a lot of the other jarred sauces. 
The sugar thing is really interesting to me because I was kind of asking myself, like, why is it that this didn't exist before? Why is it that all of these other competitors are full of canola oil and added sugar and all manner of umskia? And the there are, there were basically um, three theories I had, and I don't know which of them are true and to what degree they're you know they're playing here. One is just that it's much cheaper for them to do it that way, and there was there's always been this you know capitalistic urge to try and produce things as cheaply as possible in order to compete in the market and to maximize your you know profit margins and that kind of stuff so like you know you do that just for the sake of making it cheaper the second is that americans have historically had a very sweet tooth and they maybe just prefer sweeter things and um maybe it took rayos to come along and make people realize the tastes have changed a bit and now that sweet tooth might be going away a bit um and then the third thing, which I don't know about at all, is just this idea that often you find in supermarket goods that you have a lot of ingredients there just to make sure that the product is shelf stable. It will still, you know, taste the same way in three years' time as it does today. And, it, you know, you're not going to have any botulism outbreaks or anything like that. And I do wonder, and maybe a slate money listener can write in and tell us whether this is part of it at all i do wonder whether there might not have been some kind of low-key improvements in jarring technology somewhere over the past you know 20 years that allowed rayos to jar this purely natural spaghetti sauce without having to worry about being shelf stable i mean if i make spaghetti sauce at home and put it in the fridge i can assure you it's not going to last for three years well, there's so it's so profitable a product. Like I, I would imagine that they worry less about inventory aging out. They don't need it to last twenty years or whatever. No, but they they need it to last three years. I actually I I did look this up, and they're like, you know, this is perfectly fine enough. Like it will taste the same until three years, and it will continue to be healthy after that. Like jars of tomato sauce, you know, really do just live in the back of the pantry for years and get pulled out at random times. You can't expect people to use them quickly. The other interesting thing was <laughs> this journal store was really good. There was a line in it that said Rayo's was the Zoom of food because during the <laughs> pandemic. And it did much better than Zoom because Zoom is like on the way down yes, right now. Great yeah. point. It's its popularity is still here with us. Um, but yeah, sales doubled in the pandemic. And that's when I think, you know, people were all, everyone was cooking at home and standards kind of went up for what you were going to buy and what you wanted, you know, you wanted more comfort and you wanted things that tasted better because maybe you weren't going to restaurants anymore. So there's this whole new kind of class maybe of shoppers and consumers buying things that probably they weren't even buying before and demanding a higher quality. Um, and I think that's not just, uh, that's not just reflected in the new demand for this fancier $8. I mean, it costs like $10, I think where I live a jar pasta sauce, but also for like different kinds of, um, ice cream and yogurt and things like that. Like these higher end brands are really doing better. Yeah, I think also, you know, customers were freaked out by supply shocks during the pandemic and they just started stocking up on uh, non-perishable items, I mm -hmm. think, more than they would have. Yeah. But, th but the point is, this is not like a one-off 
upstocking, right? The, mm-hmm. if, you, if you look at the sales of Rayos, they went up during the pandemic and then they just kept on going up. There yeah. was no mean reversion at all. And, that, and that's in part because of the, um, that company, Sovos, when they bought Rayos from being just a tiny, tiny business, they like pumped millions of dollars into the marketing budget and just made sure to get the product on shelves and just spread the word about it. So I think it was like the perfect co- timing was just really good. You know? Yeah, they nailed it. Nailed it. Do you know the Trump angle here? <sighs> no. There's, there's a fun little Trump angle, which is someone's going to write in and correct me on this one. But the first time that Rayo's pasta sauce was sold um, to Sovos, that was like the big exit for, you know, the the Pellegrino family and a bunch of their friends and basically the people who had turned Rayo's, the restaurant, into a brand of tomato sauces. Mm-hmm. And one of the family members who got rich from that deal was Donald Trump Jr.'s first wife. And she basically woke up one morning very rich and she was like, I don't need to be married to this dickhead anymore. (laughs) And she immediately divorced him. Oh my God. Not only is it a delicious pasta sauce, but it liberates women from bad marriages. That's a delicious story. (laughs) Yes. Oh, wonderful. All I knew was Rayo's was this like 100-plus-year-old restaurant in the Bronx that is impossible to get a table at and doesn't take reservations and is delicious. Well, so we're told. I, I think people eat there for the sake of eating at Rayo's more from the sake of more than for the sake of it being delicious. But, yeah, it is impossible to get a table at. Um, <laughs> I, re- I remember when um, Hillary Clinton became New York's junior senator, and that was – the way that she could finally get a table at Rayo's because she got invited there by Charlie Rangel. Is that why she became a junior senator? <laughs> I think that was why. I think she's like, yeah. you know, I, I've been first lady and everything and I've traveled around the world, but I've never had a table at Rayo's. So I think that in order to get that table at Rayo's, I, need, I just need to become senator for New York. Well, now she could just go to the Chappaqua Whole Foods and buy a jar of the sauce. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly P.S. Campbell says, yes, it's exactly the same. I feel like it's better. Campbell's CEO says they won't change the recipe, P.S. And he had this great quote about, like, we haven't changed our chicken noodle soup in 125 years, which I really liked. I was kind of like, maybe you should change it. I've had it, and it's not, like, so great. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about some amazing hairdos, or at least one amazing hairdo. Elizabeth, on the scale of 1 to 10... How would you rank Javier Millet's hair? Uh, what, what's the context in terms of height or <laughs> multiple directions it, it goes in? It's it's a you know I, we, when we were talking about this yesterday, Felix had trouble believing that Millet was an economist, and possibly because he looks like a Neil Diamond impersonator. But his hair is amazing, and it exists at an altitude that I don't think I've ever seen on a politician before. So we're talking about... (laughs) Who are we talking about, Emily? (laughs) Yes. So we're talking about a man named Javier Millet. He's a 52-year-old economist, and we're talking about him because he just won a presidential primary in Argentina. And there's plenty to say about Argentina and Argentina's economy. But first, we want to talk about this guy's hair, because it is wild Jacob Gallagher in the journal described it as, he said, it looks like 
a musk ox crossbred with Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> um, it's just like kind of like gives me Rod Stewart from the 70s vibes also, but different. It looks like a wind pushed his hair forward, like the blow dryer was coming from behind and just kind of like blew it out from the, you know what I mean? From back to front. But then he's also got these like sideburns running down the middle of his cheeks. Gotta go Google if you're listening. It's a very impressive do. And he inevitably, when it comes to hair like this, is, um, uh, you know, extreme right winger. He is definitely in line with Boris Johnson, who was also famous for his crazy hair. And indeed, Donald Trump, who was, you know, also one of these people who travels with a very specific hairstylist and doesn't let anyone else touch his hair and is very weird about his hair. Like, like it's, there was this quote, I can't remember where I saw it, where someone explained that if you're a male, middle-aged, white guy politician, you know, you do this thing of just wearing dark suits and white shirts and ties, and all of these politicians kind of look the same, and your hair is the one way that you can stand out and present as being wild and different and unorthodox. Yes. It's like a plant coming out of the crack in the sidewalk. Like everything's tamped down, but something has to grow and grow big <laughs> and wild and nonconformist, and it's the hair. I, ha I mean, come to think, like Reagan had pretty impressive hair as well. But you know, it's it's. I, I have to say, if you if if you look at the politicians with the best hair, they're all on the right. Yeah, that's what the the piece that we read for the show definitely said, and and had experts quoted saying it. <laughs> which which sort of makes you wonder if the products and the hair dye are just leaching into the brain somehow. <laughs> well, we should, <laughs> I guess, explain a little bit about what makes this man. Um, with the hair in Argentina, a nonconformist, right? He hates the country's Federal Reserve Bank. He wants to abolish it. The central bank. He wants to abolish the central bank. He, in fact, he wants to abolish the entire currency. Yep. Get rid of the currency. Just bring the dollar to Argentina. He's basically an ultra-libertarian. He, he had this um, very beloved dog named Conan, which gives you an idea of his politics right there. Um <laughs> And when Conan died, he cloned the dog, because that's what people do these days, you know, whether you're Javier Malay or Barbara Streisand. And he now has five, like, mini Conans, one of whom is also called Conan for continuity purposes. And all of the other ones are named after libertarian economists. So there's Milton after Milton Friedman. There's Murray after Murray Rothbard. And then there's two dogs named after Robert Lucas. There's Robert and Lucas. Um, so that's, you know, it's basically take that Milton Friedman idea of just like, get the government out of as much of the economy as you can possibly do, abolish entire ministries and let the market take care of things because, you know, whatever problems there are with the market, they won't, they'll, they'll be tiny compared to the kind of problems that Argentine governments have managed to create over the course of the past you know, call it 140 years. Yeah, Argentina is in rough shape. So inflation over the past year is 113%. Like, that's that seems bad. We're I am about. literally old enough to remember when I used to go <laughs> down there and there was, you know, a currency board and the peso was one-to-one. -one. And then it devalued and I went down there and the peso was, there were three pesos to the dollar and I'm like, whoa, everything is so cheap now. This is amazing. And I bought like some great leather goods and stuff at three pesos to the dollar. Now the sort of 
unofficial black black market exchange rate is 710 pesos to the dollar. Like it's Yeesh. seven pesos doesn't even buy you a single US penny. So that seems bad. Like how much worse could this guy make it? <laughs> and, <laughs> right? And, and it's at, you're absolutely right about that. Like <laughs> and this is one of the things. If you look at like the sell side research about Argentina from the banks, markets did fall a bit when he won the primary because it, it, it it's like chaos, you know? He's just a complete yeah. chaos agent. But they don't kind of hate his poli- policies, especially once you realize that he doesn't really have a political party behind him. And whenever, whenever anyone runs on his party, they do really badly. It's really just him. He could well win the presidency, but he won't have a party in Congress who can pass laws. And so, you know... Given the constraint of if he wants to do anything, he's going to need to you know pass legislation or at least get a referendum through and get a majority of the country. And he suddenly didn't get a majority of the vote in the in the primary. There are sort of checks and balance constraints on what he can do, and people are saying, well, you know, he might well actually be a better president than the people who are just effectively you know quote unquote borrowing money from the central bank to cover the um, government spending and everyone knows that those loans will never get paid back and so it just becomes monetized and hence the you know hyperinflation do we know what he could do unilaterally if he got elected well like you know a little bit like the u.s president he has a lot of um leeway in terms of foreign policy so he says he wants to leave mercosur which is the you know trade block with chile and um, brazil and uruguay so that could be disruptive but yeah it's not clear i think is is the answer it's not clear how much of a mandate he would have and how much he'd be able to push through would he be able to dollarize the entire economy i mean he would really have control of the central bank he would have control of the finance ministry um so you know it's a your argentine presidents are they do have real power is there um an example of a country that's gotten rid of its own currency and just went to dollars ecuador is a good one and that turned out okay? I mean, I think it would be a stretch to say that Ecuador has turned out okay. They just had a presidential candidate get assassinated. Right. But that has nothing to do with the, the dollar. <laughs> Probably not because <laughs> of the dollar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, basically what happens is that you you lose an important part of what it means to be a sovereign nation. You know, you don't have control of your own interest rates. You don't have, you know, a central bank who can, you know, run the economy. You're at the mercy of the U.S. Federal Reserve. If American inflation is running high for whatever reason in, you know, the USA, and the Federal Reserve starts hiking interest rates 11 times, then your interest rates in Argentina or Ecuador or whatever have to go up because effectively the federal reserve is your central bank and the federal reserve has made it very very clear that they do not consider the plight of dollarized economies when they're making interest rate policies they only consider the united states so you know the idea that your currency is being controlled by a central bank that literally does not care about you is definitely you know one of the problems here and definitely like argentina's kind of been there, done that, right? I mean, they used to, like you said, they used to have um, their currency pegged to the dollar and they didn't have... Yeah, it kind of of worked until it didn't. You know, it was was quite a popular and successful policy. Like, they didn't quite dollarize. They didn't move two dollars. They kept the peso, but they just made sure that every peso was backed by a dollar in what they call the currency board. 
and then you know they had this this another fine another right wing politician with good hair. This guy um, Domingo Cavajo um, was the finance minister who just basically said, "Yeah, this isn't working anymore because they were just they had this this terrible recession, soaring unemployment, and they just really needed to devalue, and so they did, and that was the end of that." So. I guess one of the things about dollarizing is you cannot devalue because you don't have a currency to devalue anymore. Mm. Even less control. You know, it, it does it doesn't solve the bigger sort of endemic problems of like, you know, what happens if your industry just isn't globally competitive. But it's not like like the US is really unique in that our central bank they can kind of do what they want and we're okay. Whereas uh, other countries, e- even if they have central banks that can tinker with interest rates and things like that, they're still kind of at the mercy of the dollar and the and the broader financial system, right? I'm, you know what I mean? Like, no, I mean, there are a lot of countries that have a lot of power and control of their central banks, right? They tend to be the richer countries. So, yeah. but, you know, it's not just the United States, you know, it would definitely apply to UK, Japan, Canada, certainly China, India, you know, they're not sort of at the mercy. Like, the FX rates are not that important to those countries. I guess I'm thinking more of, like, poorer countries, emerging markets, right. that kind of thing. You know? But emerging yeah. markets, yeah, they they do tend... That's one of the big differences between a developed country and an emerging market. So the emerging markets do need to care about much more about the balance of payments and yeah. the foreign exchange rate and that kind of stuff. Well, will weird hair make it all the way to the top? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. with the Almost certainly he will not win the election in October, but he will almost certainly be one of the top two. So then there will be a runoff in November. And yeah, he could he could easily win that. All right. I think we should have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? I do. Uh, it's $413 billion. And that's the market value of Novo Nordisk. Uh, and that's a little bit more than the entire GDP of Denmark, where the company is headquartered. Oh, oh, and the stock versus flows again. We love them. <laughs> there was a there was a whole article where they were like, "This is a really dumb comparison, but we're going to make it anyway because we cannot resist." Um, but anyway, Elizabeth, go on. The thing is, for context, this company makes Ozempic and Wagovi, which are the weight loss drugs that many many Americans are buying now. And there's so much American demand that this is actually having some ripple effects on the Danish economy. What wow. are the what are the ripple effects on the Danish economy? Well, it's it's strengthened the Danish kroner, which is the currency, uh, and as a result, it's it's kept interest rates lower than the EU pick, the EU rates. So, so the weight loss drug is fattening the Danish economy. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Basically, yes. So you know there are there are shares that trade, and I own a I, I own a share in Novo Nordisk, and I sell it to someone else at a profit, and I get a bunch of money. The idea is that like I'm Danish, and I'm getting I'm I'm taking my profits in Danish krona, and so when I'm selling those shares, there's demand for Danish krona from the person who wants to buy the shares, and the that demand for Danish krona is strengthened the currency? Is, the, is that the mechanism? I think so. There's also a sort of, uh, an element to this that I didn't realize. The company is partly owned by a foundation, 
And so they, for I, I think some of the money gets plowed back into uh, not just the company, but uh, you know, public goods in a way or public infrastructure. When you say the money, do you mean like the Novo Nordisk dividends? Have they gone up? You know, actually, just scratch that because I'm not sure. I, I need to. I would need to check that. You're going too deep on this one, Felix. <laughs> Sorry, she doesn't I gonna, know. <laughs> I am my, mildly, you know, <laughs> obsessed by, by Nova Nordisk, which, which, by the way, we should we should make clear is mainly a diabetes company. Like, you know, the 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 increase in share prices because people are really excited about. Oh my god, it's going to make so much money from Wegovy, but for the time being, it's still the the overwhelming majority of its revenues are still its you know core diabetes drugs. That can't last forever. These drugs are blockbuster like this is like change these drugs are changing everything they're changing seems like emily what's your number okay my number is 59 percent 59 percent is the share of generation z who watches tv or streaming with the subtitles on and that's from a survey conducted last fall and this is interesting to me because everyone watches tv and streaming with the subtitles on now and movies too and the young, the kids today, they just read TV and they read movies, and um, they like it. And and partly this is because today's TVs and iPhones and iPads, the way people watch content, the the sound just isn't that good. Like they didn't care about the sound as much. There's a great piece in the Times by um, Brian X Chen that kind of goes into like where the speakers are situated on big TVs now, and like you should buy like a sound bar or whatever. So the sound's not that good. Like no one was paying attention to the sound. Or like if you're watching a movie on your iPhone, the sound's been compressed. So it's really hard to understand what anyone is saying in movies now, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Like a movie should show you images and sound and you should be able to like get the message across, but they don't. So everyone's reading them now. And the kids today, they like to read them. There's in the in the survey, um, they talk about how kids like to get ahead of the plot so they can do other stuff while watching TV. You know what I mean? So you can see kind of like what's what's coming because you read faster than you take in the picture and the sound. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting, people reading the movies. Do you guys do that? Yeah, we, we started trying to watch I'm a Virgo on Amazon. And yeah, it was like, I it was just a mush of sound and i had to turn the subtitles on because i had no idea what anyone was saying yeah i think part of it is that people just don't put as much effort into sound quality as yeah they used to um but one of the interesting repercussions is that the whole art of subtitling has become way more important and demand for subtitlers is through the roof and Especially in like when you when you <laughs> given the internationalization of streaming, now that a whole bunch of stuff that we watch is foreign, whether it's you know Squid Game or whatever or Drops of God, um, everyone just expects everything to be subtitled. So like dubbing has basically disappeared, and mm-hmm. you just you when you watch something foreign, you're watching something genuinely foreign without anyone trying to pretend that they're speaking in your language. It's kind of fun. Yes. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. The subtitle, the art of the subtitles, it's really interesting. And I feel like when Stranger Things was popular, I guess last summer, that was like a big story because the subtitles to Stranger Things were amazing. Like the word squelch kind of went viral for a time because it was used in the subtitles. I mean, they're really, really, really good. My number is 
10,500, which is the amount that a farm in Germany is being sued for in euros by a man named Felix. Because in Germany, we just know that his name is Felix F. But Felix F. decided he was going for a hike in Bavaria, and he parked his car next to a farm, and he went for his hike, and he came back, and he discovered that his Mercedes had been severely damaged by being licked by cows. <laughs> the, the, the cows had found his car and had licked it and had, got ten, yeah. has, had caused 10,500 euros of damages. And so now he is suing for 10,500 euros. And I think last last I saw, they'd offered to settle for about half that. And I guess cow licking is not a clause in, his, in a typical auto insurance <laughs> policy. It should be. Guys, make sure if you have car insurance that your car is insured against cow tongues because they can cause a lot of damage. <laughs> On which note, I think we really need to wrap this up. Um, thanks for listening to Slate Money. Uh, thanks for being a Slate Plus member. If you are, we're going to have a Slate Plus segment on retail creep. It's the holidays already, apparently. Um, so we're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. Many thanks to all, oh my God, Merritt and Kevin and Patrick and the whole Slate production edifice. We have so many people part of this production this week. It's fantastic. And we will be back on Monday with Yapoka Yibo talking about her book, Anansi's Gold, as part of the Sleek Money Criminals miniseries.